I love reading biographies or even watching documentaries about how people came into power. Some earned it through merit, others for being in the right place at the right time. Some assumed it because of their namesake or their fame, or in some cases, their ability to defame. And then those who claim it by breaking the rules and even the law and civil order. And what really fascinates me is what people do next when they have claimed that power. In 1887, the English politician and writer Lord John Acton invented the immortal phrase, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is this true of everyone? Or is it true of a world where men have dominated the power game? I've always thought about this gender disparity. As a father of two wonderful girls, I've always questioned, why aren't there more women in power? Statistics prove that the majority of women will outperform men, and I'd argue that gap will increase as we continue to move from prowess and bravado to creating and leading cultures that are highly collaborative and empathetic. Yet only 10% of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are women, and only 27 of the 193 countries in the world are led by women. And many women who claim the highest rung question, is this the place they want to be, and is this the price they want to pay? I believe that with more women in power, we would be less consumed by conquest and more focused on the health of individuals, our communities, and our planet. For all of the above, I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to have Claire Shipman as my guest as we focus on her new book, The Power Code. For decades, I've been a fan of Claire's Emmy and Peabody award-winning work as a host and reporter. Her career includes Good Morning America, NBC Nightly News, and CNN News. And she was on the front lines as the Soviet Union collapsed. And Claire has teamed up with British journalist Caddy Kay and has written five books, including two New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, you know that phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, actually, in the hands of women, that may not be true. Women who rise to the top of their organizations manage to retain their empathy and their connection for people below them. Women think of power as power too. There's a why implicit in the way we think about power. It's like, why do we want this? What do we want to get done? In this episode of Chatter That Matters, Claire shares fantastic stories about her extraordinary career. And then we dive deep into her new book, The Power Code. More joy, less ego, maximum impact for women and everyone. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. What you will learn today is that power as it stands is inherently flawed. It's not about breaking glass ceilings or climbing corporate ladders. It needs to be redefined, remade, and modernized. In doing so, we depart from the traditional understanding of power, the concept of it's a force and something that infers control over and competition with other people. We can unlock a new code where power becomes a tool to focus and collaborate and improve the current conditions of our world dramatically. Some powerful insights and some incredible takeaways await you. And stick around for Erica Nielsen, the EVP of Personal Banking and Investments at RBC. We don't talk about banking. We instead focus on what organizations can and must do to champion inclusivity, transparency, and allyship across their entire business. But first, Claire Shipman. Claire, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thrilled to be here. I've kind of become quite a fan as I started realizing. I've known you from your journalistic career, but I had no idea 
how far it reached. 15 years at ABC News, Good Morning America, reporting on politics, international affairs. Before ABC, you were at the White House, the Clinton administration, a decade at CNN, White House in Moscow, numerous awards, Peabody, DuPont, Emmys. And I just wanted to begin by asking, where, where did this passion for journalism come from? First, I have a passion for the world. I grew up in Ohio, and I think I was always eager to get out and explore and see things. And then I realized at a certain point as I was studying that, um, and especially when I became an intern at CNN, which happened because I loved, I was taking Russian language and I thought, wow, maybe I'll get to Russia. But I realized I like telling stories. And so I think that I'm curious and I really like telling stories. And I realized this was just a great combination because you you get to convey this information to people and try to make it interesting and try to get them engaged as well. And how about your parents? I mean, that's quite wordly, as you know, as you're from Ohio, very often you've got certain values that are entrenched in the family and a certain sort of boundaries in which they expect you to go. You're kind of saying, I'm going to go far beyond that. How, was that something they appreciated at home? My dad was a law professor and super focused on, um, I think he, in, until he died, I think he still thought I might go to law school. <laughs> I'd be like 40s. Like, it's not too late. You could go to law school. I'm you like, can get a serious job. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> but um, my mom, I think they were both from Texas. And my my mother was also super curious about the world. And I think she really instilled in me a kind of, you're going to get out there and see things I haven't been able to see. So I, I credit her to some extent with this natural exploration. That's quite a move geographically and culturally and morally sort of from Texas. Mm -hmm. What motivated them to go, you know, to a smaller state? And was it a simpler life or just uh, job opportunities? You know, it was interesting. No, I, and I love looking back at our parents. I find it so fascinating because I didn't, you know, I didn't understand this when I was a kid, but they left Texas. My dad was a kind of brilliant student, but probably on the spectrum, undiagnosed Asperger's, just quite smart. But and when he got job offers in Washington and he was working at law firms here for a while and when I was quite young and then taught as an uh, assistant professor at Harvard Law School, didn't get tenure. It turned into a huge, massive thing because there were student protests over it. Um, he was quite popular, but I think the Texas part was still there and didn't really work for people. He grabbed a, a different teaching job. And they went to Ohio. So I don't think it was what my mother really expected. <laughs> like She was eager to leave Texas and they sort of had this circuitous route that, of course, I wasn't really conscious of until I was an adult. You know, I love studying the, the sort of the parents and the things. So he's a bit of a square peg in a round hole in Harvard. Do you think that roars through you today? Because the way I read, you're not afraid to say what you have in the books. I mean, is that is that your dad just screaming through you? I love that idea, Tony. I think I have struggled. I'm a real people pleaser also. So this is an internal struggle I have, that I have high EQ, obsess about what people think, how they're feeling, and that. And I spent a lot of my early career just wanting to succeed in a classic way. And it took me a long time in journalism to learn that my voice was made sense the way I wanted to report made sense the way I wanted to communicate with people to conduct an interview. I mean, I had so many arguments early on in my career where, you know, people say, Oh, you're, you're too soft. You're asking too many nice questions. You have to play gotcha journalism. And this is what you have to do as a white house correspondent. And I, 
kept thinking, I, I'm not going to draw people out if I'm working this way. And it took a long time before I felt comfortable doing it the way I wanted to do it, which in the end was quite effective, right? We all have a streak of authenticity that works for us. So Kevin Newman was on my show. It might be a name you remember from Good Morning America. You didn't work together, but he speaks so highly. He says hello, by the way. And one of the things that when I had him on the show, he talked about in journalism, which we don't understand, is that you have to you have to digest so much content, so much of it is so horrific. You have to curate it, synthesize it, and then present it to the world in a way they can internalize it. They can think about it, feel, and maybe even action. How did you find a way to do that and still go back home and be the Claire, the empathetic, high EQ person? I'm really good at working under pressure and in a crisis. I think I'm almost best in a crisis kind of situation. And journalism, especially the kind I did for years, was pretty much daily crises, right? There's a deadline. You got to turn it around. You have five hours to tell a story. And for some reason, my brain works really well that way. And I'm able to compartmentalize it. In a way, I think it's a relief from the other side of me, which is kind of quite prone to overthinking, worrying about other people, um, relating. I, I don't know how I did it, but I did. Sometimes it's stressful. I mean, you know, you take a lot home from the stress of what you're witnessing, especially covering, you know, politics or really tough stories. It it definitely gets to you. So you co-author four New York Times bestsellers with Caddy K. How did you meet? We met in Washington. We were both covering politics. I think I was covering the White House at that point. And we were both Young, younger journalists with um, younger kids. And I remember distinctly, we were at somebody's house at a cocktail party and we both started comparing notes on how we thought we were very weird and strange because we were constantly trying to figure out how to get off the air and work less. Whereas everyone else we knew in the industry was like, I have to be on more and more. And we're like, we could take a little less. And we're like, we're fine with that. And that so we started having these conversations as kindred spirit, and that's really what led to our first our first book. And how do you complement each other? Because four books together, there must be a reason. Is it does she impose the deadlines that you have to react to? I mean, yes, why do you, how thank does, you. Yes, yeah. I'm the procrastinator. <laughs> she goes out and it's like we'll div- we'll start to divide a book. We'll be like, okay, I'll do chapters one, three, five, and sit. And two weeks later, Caddy will email saying, "Here's chapter two. And I am literally still thinking about the thesis of the book. And I, you know, so we, it's a pattern we go through over and over again, but we do, we complement each other. And then in the end, we, we just mash it all up and edit it. And I think what makes it work is neither of us gets overly attached, right? That we're able to put some of the ego piece aside to just get the work done. So there's a lot of analogies that I, you know, four bestsellers would be like four hit records. Is there any be- a time where you guys decided maybe it's time to do my own solo act or is it just you guys just so do so well together that you don't want to break up the dream team? Neither of us have ever really said we'd love to do a solo book and I do think writing a book is is fairly daunting for for, you know, but we've discussed that. So I think we found that we can each hold each other accountable and there's some comfort in doing it together. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Secretary Clinton, thank you for talking power today. I'm delighted to talk with you, Claire. As you point out in the book, there is joy 
in the exercise of power, if you feel like you're doing it for somebody else, if you feel like you're solving a problem, knocking down an obstacle, clearing the way for other people, particularly people who you know may need a bit of a helping hand. My guest today is Claire Shipman. She's a journalist, author, contributor. She's been at the top of her field from almost the first day she stepped onto it. Claire, you've got four bestsellers, and we're going to unpack your latest book in a moment. But how would you summarize each of your bestsellers and what you hope listeners take away? In effect, we've written an enormous amount about women and work and women in leadership to some extent. Our first book, Womenomics, was about the fact that women tend to want to work differently. This sounds so quaint now, right? Because we were very focused on the fact that, you know, you don't have to watch the clock. You can do work from anywhere. I mean, COVID now has taught us half of what was in our book. And also, we really focused on all of the studies that showed that the more women you have at the top of companies, the better they do. So we were sort of trying to show this contrast between, you know, Women are bringing all this value and we have to figure out how to make work work for us. Sadly, there's still a lot of issues around work-life balance that haven't changed that much since we wrote that book. The confidence code was something we picked up along the way where we, we would hear so many powerful women saying things to us like, I'm about to get a job promotion, but I just don't think I'm ready. My boss wants me to do this. I'm not sure I'm qualified. And it started to puzzle us because, of course, Caddy and I both have our own confidence issues, but we thought that was us. And when we see these powerful women in corporate jobs saying this stuff to us, we thought, what on earth is this? And we started to investigate confidence and we were blown away by the gap we found, especially at work, in confidence between men and women. And we really feel like that's still a crucial piece, right? Women tend to be more risk averse. We kind of figured out this, what the formula for confidence is, which is actually confidence both inspires action and you get more of it when you take risks and act. So you sort of have to be doing hard things in life to build your confidence. And men inherently are often as boys, even just more apt to do a lot of risky, often stupid things, frankly, but you, you learn it's okay, right? And like girls as perfectionists, which we society often encourages, aren't taking the same risks. So we're not building our confidence reservoir. We dove in for the next two books to um, girls because we were really struck by the fact that this gap in confidence starts at puberty why and what can we do to bolster the confidence of girls early on in a nutshell it's really helping girls uh, start to fail and take risks instead of doing what we all encourage them to do which is you know get perfect grades and be perfect people and and celebrate that all the time living the confidence code which was the second girls book was really incredible examples of young girls around the world who are displaying enormous amounts of bravery and confidence, but also sharing their struggles, like where they, how they failed, what they did, um, that we thought was really relatable for girls. Now, you bring a lot of research into each one of these books and your hypothesis or your insights to validate them. But is it fair to say that these four books are the two of you and who you are and the things that you faced? When you're talking about your observations, it's very personal. You have this incredible empathy for you. Then you sort of shift to the science of it all saying, and by the way, this is how it's validated. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's certainly 
the wim- book Womenomics and our, our desire to write it was quite personal. I mean, we were struggling with this stuff. We're like, we cannot be alone. The, the way we're feeling about work, our ambivalence, our struggle, uh, that was quite personal. Confidence, I think we started to, we recognized it in other people first, because I think it was more stark to us when we saw other women suffering from a lack of confidence. Like we almost expected that we would suffer from a lack of confidence. I don't know why. It's hysterical with Caddy too, because she says she has a British accent. So she's just accorded this incredible intelligence and she confesses that she just constantly feels like a fraud. So yes, I think we, for, you know, we have a lot of personal things in every book. I think we relate to all of it. You know, there are things in the books we don't relate to as well. I mean, honestly, and I've written about what to do, how to bolster confidence. I'm still struggling with that. The concept of the word code, you know, you used it in 45 books. Your new one's called the power code. Was this your publisher just saying, hey, let's jump on something because people are buying you, your names attached to the word code? Or is it, or do you really believe that your calling is to decode a lot of the chaos and confusion that surrounds humanity? You know, with the confidence code, I think it was fairly clear that we thought, okay, what we've, we've figured out a way to, to help women understand there's a pretty straightforward, although not easy way to acquire more confidence. And it seemed natural. And there was the alliteration, right? We love confidence. Good. Sounds good. And then it just kind of flowed through in the girls books, but the power code, we, we, this book was really hard. It's the hardest book we've ever written. Quite complicated, really broad. We started out with a lot of different titles. So we thought about Power Shift. When we sold this book, we thought we were going to document the massive shift in power that's happening to women and just sort of explain, here's what's happening and it's inevitable. Then, of course, there's a lot of backlash <laughs> after, you know, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of angst. And then the numbers really, which we thought were just improving and improving, have stalled. So the book became something different. As we dug into power, we found a lot of really odd things. And it was really only at the very end that we thought code applied. Why did you decide to deconstruct power? You know, we were talking before, and we were talking about it originally started off as this sort of uh, this journey that women are on claiming more power. But when you got into the whole world of it, it became power in terms of it's the, the lifeblood of society, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So curious why you pitched this idea for a book and why you're so fascinated by it. We pitched it because we really did think, and, and still do, that a massive shift is underway. We thought the shift was more obvious than it really is. Then we, as we started grappling with this book, we realized we have to dive into power specifically because we came across some research that shows women can often be ambivalent about power. And because when we look at the numbers, it's clear to us, we need more women in power and we're not moving quickly enough. So it was these two things, like there's something odd going on and we've got to get more women to the top in our point of view, just for the good of society. Um, but the but the research that we found is, is really fascinating. It's a Harvard study that shows, in general, the way power is used today can be quite repellent to women. And we reject it because we have broader life values in many cases than men do. And we see power, today's power, in direct conflict with a lot of the other things we value. So when your first lens on this, when I looked at your 
you know, biography, you spent most of your time at the epicenter of political power, <laughs> right? Your husband, Jay Carney, was a press secretary for Obama. I mean, you've lived and breathed Moscow, Washington, this world power shift that's going on. How did you remove those blinders and say, I'm not just going to talk about political power, but also what you talk about in your book, scientific power, societal power, power at work. Was it hard to, to remove that or did you find that there was a constant theme throughout? It wasn't hard for me to remove it because I think my brain, what, you know, when you've talked, we, we talked earlier about the division of work or the way Caddy and I work together. And I love the academic stuff. I love the science. I, my brain just dives right into that. So I can get abstract pretty quickly. And I like that. And I like starting from a kind of more abstract, very basic sense, and then understanding how that flows out. And it seemed pretty essential that we had to, you know, we had to first lay down what, what are we talking about with power? What kind of power? It's not just personal power or freedom, right? We had to really sort of slice and dice and figure out what is this thing we want to discuss? One of the things you decoded, which I think people know intuitively, but I'd love you to compress some of these thoughts that for many, many years, power served males compared to females. Given the fact that females have a majority in almost every country in this planet, why is this something that exists? Look, I mean, it is, you know... (laughs) thousands of years, we've, you know, the, the hierarchy that has arisen is has been heavily male dominated in terms of power. And when we started to look at the kind of power we mean, which is really a relational power and a modern sense of power in the structure today, we found, you know, all of the definitions of it were created by largely male sociologists, right? And this was sort of... Well, it goes back to Aristotle's time, if you think about it, which is a very male-dominated society. Very right? male-dominated society. And there was this sense, even Aristotle, we found, you know, a recognition that, you know, men have power on the surface, but women wield it behind the scenes. But of course, that's really a, a warped kind of power, right? We don't want to just wield power behind the scenes. It doesn't really help that much. And it's not placing an accurate value on on the work we do. You know, the biggest distinction we found in terms of the use of modern power, you know, the hierarchical classic definition of power today and the way academics who study it, largely a lot of the male academics who study it define it as power over, like a, a hierarchical dominance-based you, if you're in a position of power, you can make people do things. And we found that the women who are studying power today are starting to broaden that definition. And it's more about power to, to use power, to define it, to think about it. We're asking why, to what end? And that's a kind of big philosophical difference. And we think responsible for a lot of the the friction that happens now as women are getting to the top and there's this sort of struggle and a stasis also in terms of the advancement of women. So let's talk about it because the status quo is the, you know, the power to manipulate, control, demand, command, you know, the sense of, you know, almost physical power. And then you're saying the other side of it is more to influence, to encourage, to inspire. Is that fair? Part of it, I think it's the power to have influence, but I think it's also power with a why, with an end result, with a- asking, what is this for? We found, you know, so we found this in academia, that that one academic, Deborah Grunfeld of Stanford, said to us that in real time, she thinks the more she's seeing that the more women who are studying power now at universities, 
the definition is actually changing, which I find interesting. But we also found it on the ground, right? It's not as though these women leaders we talk to are aware, I'm redefining power and here's how I think about it. They're just doing it differently enough that it it's really visible, right? Whether it's a lawmaker in Senegal who's more focused on you know, electricity in in a clinic, right, is the end game for her power, or uh, the the first uh, female editor of the Economist, who's sort of running meetings in a more democratic way and in some ways a less ego filled way. Uh, so I think these things are unfolding naturally, but I think that the fact that we do use it so differently is still what is a sticking point in terms of getting to the very top of a lot of hierarchies. When we return, we'll spend more time decoding Claire Shipman and Caddy Kay's book, The Power Code, and offering you ways in which you can apply their lessons learned to your life and livelihood. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC, who have long believed that diversity is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. Their purpose of helping clients thrive and communities prosper is core to who they are as an organization. And it's something that can only be achieved when everyone has the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential and speak up for inclusion. Diversity matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Something we can all do to get our brains feeling more powerful. 15 minutes before a big job interview, a big meeting, writing down your memory of a time you felt powerful or you had influence, that changes your mindset. And the studies have shown that people who do that in real job interviews got the jobs. Claire Shipman's my guest today. She's an acclaimed journalist. She's got an extraordinary heart and she wants to offer a new power code that not only benefit women in the workplace, but all of society. My experience walking the halls of many organizations in the last two or three years doing this show is the resistance to change. Out there, there's incredible and insatiable appetite to do more, be more, be better, higher purpose and profit. You, you're seeing these incredible pockets, but eventually it's almost like people get worn down or in some cases, which I thought in your book was fascinating, taken advantage of. Because they're going, oh, well, if you've got that kind of heart, you're the person that should organize this party or, and I want, I mean, and I thought that was fascinating. And, it, you know, t- like this unpaid labor that's attached to someone coming out there saying the heart of the matter might be the, the tiebreaker for this organization, but instead it turns to be the heart of the matter is you can organize a party. Well, and it's, so that's part of this too, right? Is how do we adequately value what should be valued? Because some of those things really are essential for an organization, but right now they're effectively free labor, the mentoring, the organizing, the, the emotional support that often women provide, not, not only, but often, but it's not always valued. It's important to remember that change is hard for men too, right? And we, you know, we sort of came at this book initially thinking, you know, why won't men just give up power? They just need to let go and get, you know, but we have to approach this understanding there's natural resistance to change. And it's especially hard. Why? Because men don't have as broad a stage on which to act. Society has not allowed that yet. I mean, the men we interviewed who are trying to do things differently, who are type A and then aren't anymore, type B, trying to raise kids, trying to, 
it is hard for them. I mean, one of them said, I feel like I failed at the one thing in life I was supposed to do, which was be the primary breadwinner. You know, there's a little applause for, oh, look, he's a nice dad. But even we found in couples where the woman out earns the man, which is, you know, a third of couples now, that is the case for heteronormative couples in the United States. Both parties lie about it to the Census Bureau. It's as though women say, oh, yeah, we want a husband who does X, Y, and Z and stays at home, but maybe not really. Let's talk about your prescription. You know, you talk about more joy, less ego, maximum impact. And I love you say for women and everyone else. Talk to us about the prescription for the new power code. And you talked about little disruptions. How are we going to start using a jackhammer and knocking away some of that cement? I think one of the biggest uh, the biggest changes that needs to happen, frankly, is uh, is lies with men. So this is one piece of the book we write at the very end about marriages, power in marriages and men. I think it's hard to make massive change until men value uh, time and are allowed to value time with time raising kids, taking care of society, family, all of those, you know, high EQ things we talked about in the same way that women do, it's it's hard to have a massive shift because we need to, you know, shift some of that at work because right now we're in these narrow lanes where especially for these top, top jobs that are the prime power positions, they're set up so that you almost have to sacrifice everything else in your life to do them. And I think men are making a a big sacrifice there. So I think we need to value some of the other things in life, allow for work to take that into account. And then at the same time, the studies are there. This is what's so crazy. The leadership skills that every business study values and says are in demand right now are the ones wielded by women. Less hierarchical, more democratic, more inclusive, more you know, all of more conciliatory, all that stuff. But when push comes to shove, at the very top, we just keep replicating largely what we already have. So we have to force that open, and at every level, kind of be asking why. Here's one example of a micro disruption: people talking over women at meetings, which happens routinely, interrupting. You don't just wait till later. You right then and there, you say, let her finish. Become armed with some of those little, which sounds kind of scary to me. 20 years ago, I would have been terrified to say something like that, right? I'm not saying it's easy. But everything from, you know, you're sitting in a meeting, you're saying, wait, why aren't there more women on the committee? Wait, why does that person have to have that job experience? Hold on a minute. I actually, and I think we have to start that all the way up, while at the same time starting to value some of these other things at work and outside of work. What about the males in the workforce that are already having these attributes, you know, and and are labeled soft or focus too much on HR or the soft skills versus the the bottom line? What's your advice within organizations to say these individuals need to be as well given a seat at the table? You know, confidence doesn't have to look like madman confidence. Confidence does not have to be bravado or, you know, walking through the door, being the only one at the table who talks, talks first, right? Quiet confidence is really useful. Listening and analyzing, are those are useful skills. What we advise on those fronts where you're an, an individual, maybe not with a lot of power yet, is own your assets, right? Make sure you're communicating to your boss, your supervisor, whomever, 
I operate this way for a reason. I find it effective. Know that it's effective and then declare it effective and have open conversations about it. I think for managers on up, you have to call out that stuff and value it and say, wow, the way Mark handled that negotiation by listening and just allowing it, that was excellent. But the empirical evidence of women in power cannot be denied. And capitalism, I would say, has always been driven by empirical evidence, faster, better, more efficient. So even if you take away why we should do this as humanity and why this is the right thing to do in terms of gender equality, even strip that aside, because that's for a lot of people going, yes, why is it we're still resisting change from the even the board of directors and investor level that says, look at the data and saying, it's not about equal balance. It's about we have a better chance of winning when we have these skills at the head of our organization. You know, part of this too, Tony, I think is what we talked about at the very beginning around power, which is there's a supply problem and a demand problem, right? So yes, there are hurdles. Yes, there's bias. Yes, there's, well, she's not tough enough. She's not this enough. We, we know that. But there are an enormous number of women looking at power as it is and rejecting it. I had a conversation just the other day. I'm a part owner of our um, soccer team down here in our women's soccer team in Washington. One of the co-owners I was talking with happens to run a massive law firm. And he was telling me he was looking for a board chair and was so excited because he had the perfect woman in mind. Perfect. And and finally, after a lot of wooing, and she just said, nope, I can't do it right now. I, can't. I mean, a hugely prestigious position. I don't think it occurred to him she would say it's not the right time, right? And this is what women looking at these things are often bound to do now. And until we can make changes, you know, people want women in power, but we have to change what it looks like. Who should be more responsible? Your your friend saying, maybe I've got to restructure what the chair position is so that it is less time-consuming and I just get the best of what I want from this individual versus layer in such bureaucracy and BS that the person says, I don't have the time for it nor the interest. We've got to decode what we're asking people to do. We have to get men invested in having this broad, these broader values too because, yes, I think a lot of the way work is needs to be slightly dismantled and re remade in order to make it livable. And look, there's some positions of power. If you're running for president, you're going to be a senator, you're, you know, I don't, you're you're going to run a massive corporation. Of course, those are just hard time consuming jobs. You're not going to be able to do that as a job share or part-time. But I think there are plenty of jobs that could benefit from a slightly different take and a remake. And uh, but but you know I also think for women again it's it's not just the time it's also the kind of ego it's the sort of doing it for show as opposed to the why there's a sense of a zero sum game often in the way today's power is wielded that I think women just don't even agree with and don't you know don't want to play that way. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is a decoder. Claire Shipman's an award-winning television journalist. And with her colleague, Katty Kay, she's authored four best-selling New York Times books. And they've just come out with their latest book, The Power Code. 
So, Claire, I want to bring the interview back to you. First of all, you said your your dad's passed. Is your mom still with you? No, no, they're both gone. Did they realize that what you've achieved in terms of telling stories and changing how people think, both from journalism and books, were they around long enough to get a sense that that they actually produced quite an exceptional kid? (laughs) Thank you. Um, My mom was not, sadly. She died when I was 20. But my my dad definitely saw that. And he was alive just as my first book was about to be published. So I think he was he was pretty excited about that. Did he finally pull away from uh, giving you <laughs> pamphlets for law school? <laughs> I think he did. Yeah. I think it was a security thing. You know, he grew up in a different era and just thought this is the safe this is the safe thing to do. Just so. with the way you talk about both of them and your dad being a little bit on the spectrum, it's really interesting how you described yourself in terms of this sense of avoiding deadlines, but also having this incredibly curious appetite. How has writing these books changed you? The process of writing books is, it's it's really humbling because you, having something in print, it just seems like a great responsibility. I don't know, you know, it seems quite different than putting things, which is what I did otherwise, out on the airwaves and television. For me, it it seems more sort of carved into a rock, even though I'm sure they're both full of impact. And so I take it really seriously. And therefore, it's kind of stressful, a big responsibility. But I think it's, they've also just really engaged my sense of um, my appetite as a researcher and somebody who's just deeply curious about the way our brains work. I think for me, they've just awakened a sense of I wonder why that is. I wonder why, you know, how do we motivate? How do we do this? Why do we do that? What's the neuroscience of this? You know, I'm sort of like neuroscience and psychology and that nexus is something that just I find fascinating. Tumbling. I mean, I had my daughter read and edit the book for girls. And that was pretty much the most brutal edit I've ever had. I remember one of my daughters, when I talked about Twitter, they go, dad, that's stupid. Nobody, what's Twitter? You know, because they were just on Facebook. And every once in a while, it's very rare. I can go back to them and say, do you remember? And most of the time they've erased where I've actually had some, no, they're they're wonderful kids. Of course. <laughs> and, and what's next for you? We're still in the aftermath of this one. And we're excited. I mean, it's funny because sometimes, you know, writing a book, you go through lots of different processes. There's this sort of like, this will never work. This is a failure. This is too big. This is too hard. No. And then finally, I felt like in the final months, right before I had to turn it in, I felt like, oh, I kind of like this idea. And then there's the process of talking about it, which has been the last few weeks. And that's a, that's an entirely different process, right? To having these great conversations, feeling like people get to know it. I learn new things about power too. So we're kind of in the middle of that right now, this engagement about power and seeing how people, what they can take away from this. But I mean, I, do you see yourself like a Simon Sinek who sort of came on the sort of sense of why in the golden circle and said, I am going to do everything I can to have that become part of the DNA of organizations? Or I would, you know, Tom Peters years ago with In Search of Excellence. Do you see, is this now going to become a calling and a mission or I'm going to send surrender this to the world and because my curious mind wants me now to find another vein to tap into. You know, again, our, our we've had a theme here, which is around women and change. And I think that is fairly embedded for us. We feel really strongly about it. And for a lot of reasons, not for equity as much as, as you said, just kind of 
let's uh, let's have sane leadership and save the planet and kind of you know force a more diversity. I spend a lot of time. I'm on the board. I'm going to be co-chair of the board of Columbia, and that's going to take a bit of time over the next couple of years. But there's a lot happening there that's really excited about policy and women that I hope I can be part of there. And then, you know, usually we recover for about a year, a year and a half and declare we'll never, ever, ever again write another book. I've told so many people because this book was so difficult. I've told them, I was like, if I say I'm going to write another book, don't let me. And already when Caddy and I are like, I wonder if that's, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. it's like having a child. You have to forget it all to do it again. You know, I always end my my show with my three takeaways. And the first one, which I think is such a powerful statement, and I hope listeners, the sense of confidence gap that begins at puberty with girls in the sense that boys sometimes do these stupid things, but they're also learning to risk and act. The second is just your um, your humor. With your credentials, the awards you've won, the books you've written, you, you know, you could have been this very academic professor just, you know, lecturing me all about power and where we need to go. And what I really enjoyed about you is just, you do have this incredible emotional intelligence. You have, you're, you've got this lovely humor, enjoyment. I mean, the, the fact that you just talked about how your daughter just rolled her eyes for five years editing the book is just a wonderful lesson for people. No matter where you are on the power curve is never lose sight of who you are. And the other thing is just the sense that, you know, as much as you spent time as this trailblazer machete a new trail for women to follow and one that they they can skip on with confidence and not feel like they're imposter or have to act a certain way you've never have put men in the sense of being irrelevant extinct and the fact that you've even reached out and said you know it's tough on them to change as well because what defined who they are the brawn and the and the physical strength is no longer the currency of the day. So for those three things, I mean, I guess it's just this massive heart that roars through you. And I just love chatting with you on uh, on the show. Thank you. You're, this has been such a great, I love the way you meander through this topic, but so purposefully. So it's it's an incredible conversation. Joining me now is Erica Nielsen. She's the executive vice president personal banking and investments at RBC, and she's co-chair of RBC's Canadian Banking Women's Forum. Erica, thanks for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. I've heard so much about you, and I'm glad that you finally, we found time in your schedule to join me on the show. And I think this is an important one because of the work you're doing to sort of elevate women in the workforce, in fact, into our economy. So Claire Shipman's co-authored five books that talk about women leadership, women empowerment, and how we need a new power code that reflects culture in an organization. And one point that Claire made that stuck with me and I want to talk to you about is the comparison between girls and boys. Boys are often chastised for doing stupid things on face value. But what this research is suggesting, yeah, this may be stupid, but they're taking risks. They're attempting to navigate uncertain situations. And in doing so, they start building confidence in their ability to overcome circumstances. Same research says women, or in this case, girls, are often cautioned not to go outside their comfort zone, stay within the lines. And later, as they enter the workforce, they haven't got the same skill set of putting their hand up for promotion or go after things unless they're certain they can do it. Yeah, Tony, I think it's a really interesting observation that that Claire made. And I, I would, you know, from my own personal experience, I think... It's really true. I think there's societal norms that we expect girls to behave in certain ways and boys to behave in other ways. And then 
you know, transform or move 15 years forward in somebody's career. And those societal norms have really entrenched themselves in the way that people behave in organizations. I'll give an example of my own self. If you go back to, you know, early adolescence, I think my mom would have told you that I was a bit bossy, that I, you know, my mouth got me in trouble. I learned in my teenage years and as I went into high school and university, how to stop raising that voice and to stop using that voice uh, in probably negative ways. And it wasn't until I got later, a little bit later in my career that I had this amazing leader who instilled in me the confidence to bring back that voice, to raise the voice again. And, you know, she, she used the analogy we sometimes talk about, which is fake it until you make it. But that statement is all about building confidence underneath. It's about having the confidence to express your opinion and doing so understanding that it's going to be okay by raising that voice. And I think you're right that that's what parents need to do um, with both their genders of children, both boys and girls, but being exceptionally uh, observant of what's happening to young girls. How do we bottle what that mentor gave you in the sense saying, use your voice, put up your hands, go after things, you know, take a chance. How do we bottle that and bring it out into our economy so that it's, it's more of the norm than often the exception? Yeah. One of the things that we talk about, or I talk about with young women that I mentor is practicing that skill set and starting small in your practice so that by the time you get to moments that exceptionally matter in your career, you feel confident to put yourself out there. So for young women at RBC, we talk about the next time you're going to a meeting with peers, how are you going to take that first step to an area that feels uncomfortable to raising your voice in a way that maybe you haven't in the past? Because the notion of doing it in that audience is is very low risk. And then you build confidence and you build uh, comfort in doing that so that when you get to times that matter, when you get to that job interview that's really important for that, uh, you know, when you put yourself out there for that next opportunity, that you have a path of experience that makes you confident in that moment to step in and be yourself and really go for it without feeling like you're on the end of a limb. I've seen a number of ads. I worked on the Dove brand for years, but always put it out as well that we tend to frame a male a certain way as being uh, aggressive or confident, but a woman being bitchy or bossy. Do you think that vernacular is still existing? Oh, Tony, I think this vernacular always exists. And I think we have to catch ourselves. You know, it's in the dialogue we've had over the last number of years on unconscious bias. I recently was catching myself in my own office, um, having a mentoring conversation with another young uh, female leader at RBC and talking about how the use of video conferencing technology takes away some of the human element and, you know, needing her to be more relatable to the audiences through WebEx. And I realized after that conversation how gender specific my feedback was. And I went back to that leader and we just then had a purposeful open dialogue. So I would just tell you that I think it exists. And one of the things that each of us need to do is think about how we bring those biases into the way in which we coach and mentor so that we can actually break down that barrier. There was nothing wrong with the feedback that I was giving to that individual. That was about connecting with audiences to create followership so she could actually drive forward the business. But sometimes it's in the choice of words that we use can be gender specific that really get in the way of what we're trying to achieve. So we talk about the word bringing in. I want to build on that as well, because the empirical evidence you cannot deny 
more often than not, women in power are delivering better results, head, heart, and hands in terms of strategy, in terms of the quality of the culture and the bottom line. What is it going to take to bring more women into power? Because if the math says it makes the right sense, what's blocking us? I think a couple of things get in our way. Uh, one ties back into where, you know, what we were originally talking about was building confidence in young women uh, or building confidence in minority groups to have the strength to put themselves out there, to take the risk. And you do that over successive times of building confidence. It doesn't just happen. You know, you don't get to the final game of the World Series without a whole season behind you and a set of playoff games to prepare for that moment, to prepare for that game. That's one side. The other side is that we need those who are in positions of power. And for many times that is men in those positions of power advocating for diversity in a different way than they have in the past, pulling diversity through organizations. Sometimes I think what a privilege I have to be at RBC because I stand on the shoulders of giants, both women and men who have really advocated for a different degree of diversity inside this organization. And yet I still think that it is my responsibility to be leaning in and pulling other young women through our organization. Erica Nielsen, I can only imagine the impact you're having mentoring people just by the the thoughts that you shared with us today. And I hope I can bring you back and chat that matters because uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks, Tony. I've enjoyed our conversation as well. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.